Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Challenger. At Challenger, we want to help you ensure that your retiree clients can meet their retirement needs today and tomorrow. To access thought leadership, insights, and tips on retirement planning for your clients, head on over to challenger.com.au forward slash XY. back to the XY Advisor podcast. My name is Fraser Jack and today we are talking all things around the changing landscape of retirement. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Gail McHugh. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) You're very welcome. Now, do you want to give the uh, listeners a quick overview of you and your business at the moment? Sure. My focus is predominantly on um, helping retirees, all those just five years prior to retirement, right through to dealing with aged care at the other end. Um, It's been a speciality that was actually something caused, the aged care side of it was caused by my own family's personal need. And the age, sorry, the retirement stuff was because I started as a planner at Foster in New South Wales. And um, that was, gosh, Sydney's retirement capital after people sold in Sydney, they moved to the um, mid-north coast of New South Wales and that's what I cut my teeth on. So I've been doing retirement planning for oh, too many years to count. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how Foster's known as that retirement village, isn't it? Yeah, around Australia. It, it used to be called God's Waiting Room. Now it's Tweetheads is yeah. God's Waiting Room. Oh, right, okay, it's moved to <laughs> Okay, well, the people of Foster will be very happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, now, go. we are talking all things um, – you know the the changing landscape in retirement, and obviously there is there is a whole lot of different topics we can cover here. Um, probably one of the things I'll hone in first with you is you've done a lot of work in the space of um, gender and gender inequality uh, around women um, in retirement. In fact, you've written books on the subject. Um, but let's let's start let's start here, I guess. Um, you know, there's obviously so many risks involved um, for women in retirement. Let's let's start in this space. So. When I was doing a little bit of research um, relatively recently, not for my book but for another project that I'm working on, it it actually is that women who are 55 plus, that demographic are the highest at-risk people of being homeless. And that's not just in retirement and it's not necessarily homeless the way we see thinking people living on the street. They may be living in their car. They may be couch surfing. They may be house sitting. And to be honest, there's a lot of people that are doing it and they are hidden because effectively they have a roof over their head, whether it be a car roof or a, a somebody else's roof, they have a roof. And that means that those people don't necessarily have the capacity to um, provide themselves with a secure um, home abode. Yeah, this is a horrific stat, isn't it? Like Just the thought of you know becoming homeless is enough to probably rock anybody, but where, where is this coming from and, and, and where are we seeing it and how do we fix it? Well, part of it's caused by failing relationships um, and, and also the fact that there's a massive difference in pays even now for 
women in comparison to men. Um, it's a, anything up to 20%, depending upon the industry that you're in, that women will be paid less than a male counterpart. In fact, I remember when I was managing a practice at one point that the sales guys expected to be paid more than I was and I had a full client load and managing 18 staff. So, And they're going, well, we should be paid more than her because we're doing sales. And I'm like, it's not about that, guys. It's about skill set. Yeah, and so th- this is also the flow and effect, I guess, from the the difference in, in balances of superannuation funds. Oh, it is. It's a massive difference because, but not only that, there's women take time out, whether it be to have children or they get to the other end of the scale and they're pushing another set of wheels. Instead of stroller, they're pushing wheelchairs or helping people with wheelie walkers. And mainly it is, from my experience, it's the woman who stops work or reduces her work from being full-time to part-time to accommodate the care needs of the family, whether it be the younger generation, the older generation, or even grandma stopping work to look after or reducing her workouts to look after her grandchildren so that her daughter can go and earn an income. Yeah, okay. So so some of this... Um, some of this homelessness could also be the, the concept of, as you said, but... Um, but- people or grandparents moving back in and and being supported by other family members? To a degree, but what I find with that is there's often an expectation if there has been a house um, that mum and dad owned and mum and dad's relationship has broken up, there's not enough left after that split to actually allow either one of them to necessarily go and buy something for themselves to provide security. So then there's often then somebody goes, oh, hang on, mummy can come and live with me and she can put some money into the house that we've got. So then if if it's not done properly with either a life tenancy agreement or a loan agreement, then if mum falls out with the child and their partners, then the chances are they walk away with nothing. Yeah, there's obviously a fairly risky space when it comes to combining yeah. you know, incomes and properties and living together and granny flats and all those types of things. So, yeah, there's a lot of risk that, that is hidden, but it's hidden in plain sight and most people don't ever, ever recognise it till they're impacted by it. Yeah, now this is a really interesting um, part of it. So, as you mentioned, hidden in plain sight. And I guess there, were, there would be a lot of fear and anxiety around this that may not come to the conversation immediately. Oh, totally. There's a lot of embarrassment actually about it as well because people sort of go, I've got this over here, as in I want to give the impression that I've got this but they really don't and they don't want to let you know what they don't have. And as I keep saying to people, it doesn't matter what you've got, where we are is your starting point. And if we don't know what the starting point is transparently, um, we literally have no capacity to help you the way you need to be helped the best way. Is this also a conversation around reaching out for help or not reaching out for help when it comes to like maybe I don't understand what the value of advice could be if I don't have very much? Totally, totally. Because realistically, um, regardless of where you're starting, understanding the power of advice, it's not really that advice is me saying, oh, here, let me take your money, let me put it in product A. It's actually more about me going, tell me about you Now, I'll give you an example of this. I had a lovely woman around two years ago. She was around 58, 59 at the time. She was a recovering breast cancer person. She just had a double mastectomy and she was going through all the the chemo stuff. And she came in and she said to me, Gail, I hope you can help me. And I went, why is that, my love? And she said, 
I've spoken to two male financial planners. They both threw their hands up in the air and said, there's nothing that I can help you with. And I went, okay, so let's talk. Just, I'm not, is it okay if I write some rough notes and I'll ask you some questions later? And it turned out that her biggest wish was for security. She hadn't enough money to buy a house outright. We could actually then move some money around and put it into um, superannuation as a product, as an example, to effectively shelter it from Centrelink's testing. Now, the reason that was done was she was needing the um, financial support of a disability support pension and the discounts that that would give her in in regard to her medical treatments. So simply by listening to her, I could use something that would allow her peace of mind and capacity to have her um, asset and her lifestyle. The last time I went to see her, which was only about six weeks ago, she's in great health because this is no longer stressed to the eyeballs. Yeah, the uh, the head plays a big part in this conversation and the, and the emotion. Well, you know, there's the head and the heart, isn't there? I often think of that. And you mentioned the words power of advice before, which I love that term, by the way. Thank you for saying that. Um, the power of advice around reducing that uncertainty, reducing the risks, and then there's the financial strategies. And so a, a big part of this is emotional, you know, feeling more certain and knowing where we are versus the financial side of it. Um, oh, it's an incredible thing because for most people, for we have a value system. I don't know whether you're aware but and, and the listeners may not be, but everyone has a value system and it depends on where security or flexibility or, you know, freedom, where they fit in your value system as to what's going to be important for you. And as an advisor, we have to adapt to an individual's value system. It may not be my value system, but I have to work with an external value system that belongs to the client so that I can help them feel whatever they need whether it be to have a degree of certainty or to have a secure home, whatever their requirement is, that's part of my job. And I see that as the biggest part of my job rather than going, hey, here's a product. Yep. Now I go, just- here's a strategy and a solution. And then the product, which used to be when I first started planning, that used to be like, oh, we've got this many things going on. It's now also, it's almost like a byproduct of the strategy and the advice. Yeah, certainly is. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, in, in the past, distribution came from product providers and we were all asked to, you know, uh, we, have, we have these products called superannuation products and they're, aren't they amazing? They provide some great benefits and they, they, they go out and distribute them and find the find people with the need. Uh, now it's the opposite. It's the people finding finding the people, at, you know, helping them solve their needs with strategies and then and then finding products. Totally. Um, just on this, just on this concept of emotional um, side of it, because there's uncertainty, there's risk. But um, one of the things we've spoken about in the past is around um, the, the the loss of identity or understanding the the client's identity. How do you see that um, playing into this? Oh gosh, I have had many conversations with my clients over time where they've been long term employees or they've been long term professional or long term business owners. Um, so that instead of having them go cold turkey, for want of a better term, and say I'm retiring on the 1st of July or I'm retiring as at the 30th of June. Firstly, I usually go, please, can we not do the 30th of June? Because if there's any final payments, it's just going to get added to the rest of your taxable income. You know, so I'm like, yeah, let's, let's just play with it, massage the dates. But for me, mostly, it's about the fact that some people identify with their occupation. They don't identify as 
who they are intrinsically. Um, they they go well. I'm let's say I'm a financial planner. I'm a mother of three, a grandmother of one and a half. Of course, one's due in July. You know, I'm a business owner, but I don't. I don't. That's not my identity. I'm a person who's basically. I'm willing to take risks. I'm willing to do things outside the square, but I own my values. But most people are all attached to their occupation as such. So for those people, I think it's a really important thing to instead of just stopping work, to transition from being a full-time identity into something else. And in the past, I've actually said to people, look, you've got a whole pile of long service leave, so you're not financially impacted. How about we, we consider the opportunity of blending, working and taking leave. Yeah. And they go, can you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, amazing. You've got to ask your HR people, it's, but it's, most employers are not going to want to pay out a lump sum of all of your final entitlements because that would re- be really bad for their cash flow. And they go, oh, never thought of it like that. And the big sweetener on that is that if they take that leave, and they slowly transition from working maybe five days to three days or five days to four to three to two to one to none, then they can get to a point where they go, oh, um, I have all these other interests outside of being whatever their occupation was, and suddenly they can go, oh, I am whatever they choose to be. Yeah, so this becomes a financial transition as well yeah. as an, an identity transition. Now, now it's a very interesting point you raise there when it comes to, say, a professional who's always been known for this, you know, a doctor or whatever they might be, or an accountant or a, a, a lawyer, and then they're no longer that. They're now a retired person. So as you mentioned, that conversation around values is really important. How do you have that conversation with somebody who has been – known as this one thing for so long and now has to transition that? I'm going to be honest, you can't always win on that transaction, <laughs> that conversation, um, that transition that would be ideal because in some instances, like, for example, a lot of planners, unless they're self-employed, there's no capacity for us to be part-time employed because it costs the licensee or it costs so much to be licensed and that's a fixed fee. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you work one day a week or you work five days a week. That's the fee. So in some issues, it's for instances, it's not particularly um, viable to do that. But if it's somebody like a um, a professional who can choose to work three days a week, or a teacher who can job share, for example, that's a really great way to do it. But it's all about having the conversation and going, what would you like, and letting them tell you, and then basically coming back and going, so what if we did this instead? Because it's usually, I find, it's the putting of the extra thought process into it and having managed people, I, I'm very aware of um, some of the things that your HR department can do. So it means that if you can go and ask the right questions, you can potentially get an answer that will facilitate a gradual change. Yeah, this is a really um, interesting aspect of it for those for those clients who are employed um, and going back to the HR department, sort of in a to and fro conversation around what options are? Yeah, it's a really important factor because um, if you don't ask the right questions or you don't even ask the question in the first place, usually the HR people will tell you because they like to show what they know, right? So um, it's a, a quite an important factor to just sort of go, I'm, I'm considering this, is it a possibility? Put it as a question and nine times out of ten they'll go, oh, we can make that happen. 
Yeah, but you're also right in the, on the, with the opposite as well. When you say that, you know, if you don't say anything, they'll just give you the standard what they what what most other people do. Correct, and you know, most people who are retiring and just taking a lump sum, I'm going to give you an example. It's a person I know who had held a business for 14 years and nine months. Now, for us, we know that there's a 15 year rule, right? And they got cranky pants on and said, that's it, I'm done. And they had a bucket load of leave that they could have used. But um, And this is a family member. <laughs> and they just told me afterwards what they'd done and I was like, oh, my goodness. You could have done this, this, this and this um, and had a totally different outcome and paid no capital gains tax. However, now we're in the process of having to use a strategy that will help minimise the damage but it won't take it away entirely. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of the time, well, and that's the problem. Like, There's, there's so many complexities around our system that you know people don't know what they don't know uh, and often make decisions before seeking advice. And they make emotional spur-of-the-moment decisions and that's one of the biggest issues if you're thinking about being cranky and wanting to get out of your business or if you're in partnership with somebody, have them buy you out. Go and talk to your accountant or your financial planner. Don't just go, I'm done. Because it could be, in that instance, it was three months. They could have been on leave and it would have totally changed everything. Yep. So how, so how do we within, within the profession get that message out? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think that there's a really simple answer on this one because I don't know about you, but since I left school and I was – 17 when I left school and I'm 58 now, all I've ever done is money. So I've got a background of banking and commercial lending and mortgage lending and financial planning and I've worked in accountants' offices and I've picked up a bucket load by osmosis simply because I've been in the industry and I've gone, I've had a need to go and find something out, whereas I know people who know about cars and they know about computers, but I, I don't know them because literally I don't know what I don't know about that. So this is the problem. People don't know what they don't know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and the complexities around it are such where you, it's really hard to work out what the right questions are to ask. Exactly. And until you, you are faced with something like that, um, sometimes it's really a case of not knowing what to ask, but to just go, I think I need to have a conversation with my accountant before or my financial planner before I make these types of decisions because literally I know people who sold their portfolios at the bottom of the GFC at a time, and I can see your eyes rolling, <laughs> at a time when portfolio values had dropped by, you know, 50% plus. And the client said I was working with at the time, I did have one lady sit opposite me and she was in absolute tears. She's like, Gail, I want to sell everything. And I was like, nope, we're not going to sell the thing. I said, because it was all siloed and it was a, a gearing strategy. So, you know, the house was with one place. There was a, a loan with a, another provider. Then there was a margin loan and a, an investment portfolio. So there were four different silos we were dealing with effectively. And I said to her, because they're siloed, you're protected. And she was like, oh, oh, I didn't know that. She said, I just thought it was all related to in the one big thing. And I'm like, no, no. So, you know, it's actually about having us explain what people have sometimes. 
Yeah, now this is a big, big part of the conversation is that there is so much complexity and understanding that from most consumers' point of view is difficult when there's so many moving moving parts to the jigsaw puzzle. Well, I, I met with some clients yesterday and we had a conversation and they said, this is so complex. And I went, well, I understand your perspective of it. It's really complex. And we were, last year they sold a house. We did, did some um, investing created a strategy that means that they're not likely to ever have to pay tax for the remainder of their lives. But the point of that is they said there's so many moving parts and I went and their comment was what happens if you're not here to support us? And I went this is a, a for people in my um, occupation, this is a bog standard, I'm not saying the strategy, but it is it's exactly what it is. Um, and you will be able to take this information to another planner and they'll look at it and go, Oh, got it. Know what that is. I said, so it's more about the skill set that we have rather than this is complex. This is to you complex because it's not taking your money to the bank and working it in a term deposit. Yeah. Now, just just on this understanding piece, now that complexities uh, and understanding from the planner's point of view, um, but of course now it needs to be, and it probably always should have been, but uh, really understood by the, the consumer and the client. And oh, totally, yeah. totally. So, how do we and sort they, of get that information across when there are when it is is complex? And how do we? How much time, I guess, do we spend on it? And how do we make it make that okay for the client? Well, I, I usually start off by saying to clients, "I'm a great planner. I'm a really rubbish artist." And then I start drawing bad stick figures and boxes and and lines and and, and people tend to get it when they can see it visually. And literally, I explained. I'll, I'll use a bucket strategy um, pension to um, clients yesterday and I showed them in a, a pictorial sense of drawing my boxes and saying this is defensive, this is growth, and um, they went, oh, okay, got it, thanks. And literally they sat on the other side of the table, both nod, nodded, had a smile on their face and went, got it now. Before that they literally were like, yeah, this is a bit, complex but when I explained it in a format that they could grasp it was really simple so this is for me one of the factors is that I'll draw them some really bad pictures because as I said I'm a rubbish artist but it gets the story across because when you write them in front of them and you can draw them simply then it means the concept is easier to accept yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's nothing. There's nothing uh, better than a few stick figures and uh, and a few diagrams to, to to talk about stuff. Unfortunately, that's not quite uh, what our advice documents look like, though. No, they don't. They're like reams of paper and yeah. Now, uh, just on the concept of um, complexity, does that add an addition additional layer of fear uh, to clients? Yeah, it does to to some degree. It comes down to how well it's explained and also. Um, diversification and how that's explained so I'm a weirdo I often use the old analogy of a bike wheel with spokes and indicate that a spoke might be a company and I know that I rode my bike many times when I was a kid with broken spokes because I was a bit of a wild child and the the bike still worked because the tire had integrity and when you explain it to people like that they go oh oh yeah that makes sense and then we start talking about inside the individual investment and then the sector changes and how we work with when when I'm talking sectors, I'm saying some people are more growth and, and volatility tolerant and others are not. So it's all about working within their comfort zone 
and using plain language. Yeah. It has to be, I wouldn't say simple English, but it has to be readily understood. You have to make it so that if people aren't sure, they feel confident and comfortable enough to ask you the questions so that they can get the handle on what you're trying to explain. Yes, I have to agree. I think every uh, planner in the country has got analogies they use for uh, explaining most of these <laughs> concepts. Wouldn't it be great to have a bank of all those analogies and just say, there you go, there's 10 different ways of explaining that one thing? Totally, it would. <laughs> now, you'd be working with a lot of clients around um, uh, the conversation around taking their money from a, a savings environment um, or a, a growth environment and then converting it to a, a conversation where now it, you're actually going to be spending or living on this money uh, and the different mindsets around how they then you know, translate that from being a saving to a, a spending, if you like. Oh, okay. So that is a massive head spin for a lot of people um, because all they've been taught to do is accumulate. But nobody ever says that when you get to retirement that the intention behind superannuation and all of those other things that you've accumulated is that they're going to have to provide for your lifestyle when you're no longer working. And a lot of them get really uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable, and they go, I don't want my capital to go down. But if they go to the bank and they're going to pick up a 0.8 of a percent interest rate on a million dollars, which one client suggested that he could get. I was like, woo, that's not even going to meet inflation. And then we're going to take off the um, impact of tax on that. And he went, oh, all right. So then we started to talk about investing to try and pace inflation and to try and protect the value of their investment against erosion. And um, he was, he was like, oh, Gail, no, I really don't like this. I'm very uncomfortable. And his wife on the other side of the coin was like, cool, I got it. I'm, I'm really happy with this. So as a planner, we often deal with conflicting and contrasting emotions. So their portfolio is currently constructed with a little bit of what works for her and a little bit of what, what works for him. They're both, he's slightly uncomfortable and she's like, Gail, this could could be a little, little bit more risky. And I'm like, yep, but this is the first 12 months, so I need to, you to be comfortable with this. So that at our first meeting, he was like, oh, actually, that was our third meeting when I presented to him the, the strategy and the investments and the focus. And he's like, I don't like this. And his wife's gone, this is good, this will work. And he said, I'm going to trust her, that's the wife. If she can get it, she understands that we're going to do it. And I literally spent three hours having conversations around how money would come in and it wasn't always going to be smooth because, for example, if there's a share portfolio, it pays income twice a year. It doesn't give you income every month. And he was expecting everything to pay income every month and I'm going, no, no, no. It's We just have to work out a way that will get you through the first six months to 12 months till you get your head around this. And when we sat down for a three-month review, he went, I've got it now. And I'm like, what have you got? Tell me. And he said, I understand this thing called growth and that it's going to compensate for, in his words, what I'm taking out. And I was like, oh, cool. Tell me more. So it, when it came down to it, he actually explained to me he's been watching the value of the portfolio and the changes in the actual underlying investments. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm actually comfortable with that now. And I've gone, oh, goodness, this was a man who had been a bank manager and said, I only want term deposits. 
Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? There's, um, uh, you know, that transition of getting your head around something doesn't always happen overnight. It can be a transition of, for some people get it straight away and other people just takes a bit longer and you just need to live it in a little bit and feel it and see it before the well, that transition of vol- to volatility, my kids, when they were young, they had um, managed funds held on behalf of them. And at one point, they used to measure their losses and gains in how much it- they paid $200 for a skateboard each, the two younger ones. And they used to measure the losses and gains on their portfolio in terms of skateboards. One said, could have bought a skateboard for, for what that lost. And the other one said, give it a six months and I reckon you've made that skateboard back and got another one. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's a really good way of looking at it for uh, for people that are in that space. And and and, anyone and they were teenagers got, uh, at the time. Yeah, and anyone who's got uh, kids or grandkids that want to think about that, it's a it's a it's a great concept. Understanding what that person's economy is at the time to be able to then uh, translate totally. that conversation. Now we've also talked a lot about um, the you know the trade off conversations that uh, you know people have a lot when it comes to. Uh, retiring and, um, you know, uh, when it comes to what that might look like, a retirement might look like, how do you sort of have those conversations with your clients? Oh, gosh, they can be really hard at times because most people have an expectation that when they um, retire, they're going to travel. And sorry, but COVID hit that. (laughs) I have a few clients that are saying, I expected to spend 20 grand on a trip overseas last year and we've still got it because literally COVID happened and we can't leave the country. But there's also people who will go, you know, they might spend sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year on lifestyle at the moment. But if they're going to spend sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year in retirement and suddenly their income has turned off, then we have to stop and think about, okay, let's look at what's your base requirements, what you might be willing to do less frequently, and even what you may be willing to give up. Now, there's a lot of people that are not willing to give up too much, to be absolutely honest, but in what you could maybe do is get them to think about whether they go from having a full foxtail thing that costs whatever it is a month to, oh, pay for view. You know, it might save them a couple of hundred bucks a month or they can get most of what they want by going and maybe getting a, a different subscription. So, you know, asking them to just even shop around and look at whether their phone bill and their internet provider is going to be able to be done somewhat cheaper through a different provider. You know, those things are people's people are lazy about. They're habitual. We have habits, and unless you are encouraged to look at those costs, most people never will. So that's one of my things that I sort of say to them: you've got to look at minimizing your 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 base costs, and then we need to look at what what are you willing to trade off. And the trade-off might be that instead of going overseas every 12 months, you go overseas every two or three years, but you make it within your budget. So this um, probably brings up a great uh, time of the conversation to talk about cash flow and, and how, um, how you work with your clients around the, you know, the changes in the cash flow and what they need to expect. Ah, again, very challenging for some people because they've been so used to having either a weekly or a fortnightly income. Some people get paid monthly and um, they sort of go, what do you mean some of these investments only pay income every six months? And reality of it is it's a whole new mindset because they've been so used to this security of things coming to them on a regular basis. So what we tend to do is say to people, all right, talk to me about what your minimum 
buffer is. I'm using buffer as a term, but what's your safety net amount? And some people will go 10 grand, some people will go 20 grand, some people will go 50. It just depends on the individual because they've never done this before. So what we tend to do is say, all right, let's work on the fact that you're going to have a pool of money available to you and you're going to, over time, draw it down a little bit before something comes in to compensate for it. How many people do you know use their cards automatically? They just tap wherever they go. So they don't really keep an eye on their bank balance. And for some people that can be really dangerous So what I have encouraged some people to do is go, all right, put what you're prepared to spend every week or every month into a fortnight, however you want to budget for yourself, into an account. Make that your spending account. And when that's run out, stop because you have to have another account that basically pays for your fixed living costs. And your fixed living costs are going to be things like um, your electricity, your rates, your rent, those types of things. But we still have this pool of money that's there and it's going to be topped up and, and depleted at different times. And the first six months is generally the hardest because people have fear about not having a regular income stream. And in a lot of instances when I'm setting up retirement um, income streams, I make sure that there's at least a monthly payment, even though at times you could extend that But then other people go, I need it fortnightly because in their head they can only budget fortnightly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's a really good point, um, understanding that and making sure that you get across that sort of at the beginning, I guess, um, of someone's retirement journey. And then then once they've, again, become a a new learned behaviour, they get to improve on that. Well, particularly if they've been, say, um, in receipt of a full pension and then all of a sudden they've received an inheritance or... And I've had a few people do that and they've, they've actually lost their Centrelink entitlements. And for them, it's basically, it's earth shattering because for them, um, one couple had been retired for 20 years, no, not 20, 15 years. And all of a sudden they inherited quite a large sum of money. Um, between the two of them, it was into the seven figure range. And lo and behold, that meant that they lost their, their Centrelink um, entitlements. And they were just, devastated because for 15 years they'd known that security of fortnightly income and they didn't know how they were going to cope. So I had to sit down and have that conversation about we can replace it, but instead of replacing your income on a fortnightly basis, we'll replace it on a monthly basis. Is that okay with you? Mm, I'm not sure. And then we had that conversation about having that pool of money that was their safety net. And when they could see it coming in after the first three months, they were like, oh, yeah, I got it now. So it's all about change and managing that and transitioning that change and their expectations into their new reality. Yeah. Now, that uh, the, the concept around sudden wealth or, you know, even accidental wealth, um, but probably, probably more around this inheritance part of it, how do you see that affecting people? <sighs> Some people literally, if it's, if it's a um, – like a lotto win, you basically can see that will dissipate. I remember years ago a, a 80, 85-year-old lady in the town we used to live in won $2 million and the um, horde of family appeared from nowhere and they all had their hands out. And then they had the expectation that they should be able to give all that 
and that the lady would still keep her central pension. So I had to explain the, the harsh reality and say, no, that, that won't work. Um, but for people who've inherited, there's actually quite often guilt because they've lost the emotional connection, they've lost that parent, and the, that inheritance represents for them my mum or my dad are no longer here. So there's a, quite a, an emotional thing to it and that then throws a whole different slant on how we plan because we have the need to respect the source of the the actual inheritance or the income or the the capital that's come to them and then we still have to do the education piece and go this is how we're now going to focus your life and then they go oh but I can't spend too much money because I need to leave something to my children. So you've got the money coming in with some guilt. I need to live, but hang on, I'm not going to live too well because I've got to leave money for my kids. Yeah, the guilt, the guilt's a really interesting part, isn't it? Because, um, and it does, it plays a, a factor of, and the questions around, you know, what if, if your parent was sitting here today, what would they say to you um, about this money? Or what they, would they tell you to spend it or would they tell you to, Go easy. Um, I guess that sort of gives you an indication of um, what, what they might be thinking. Yeah, it does. But it, it's a every person has a different reaction. Some people are like, oh, I, I have had one person go, look, mum's about to die. I'm going to get this much. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. They were just very businesslike. Yeah. Um, and then others are like, they'll be in tears because literally they're grieving. Yeah. So you've got that contrast between this is what's happened and I'm okay with it versus the other side of the coin of guilt. Yeah. Now, now also a lot of people have sort of um, have this uh, wealth and property, if you like. They've sort of maybe bought something years ago or, yeah. or was, or, you know, and all of a sudden it's worth a lot of money and we've had, you know, obviously, a, you know, a fairly steep rise in the property market over the last sort of um, 10, 15 years. Um, do you see a lot of that where people are sort of then have property but don't have, uh, you know, cash flow or they've, or they're trying to work out how to sell property? Well, I helped a family recently and they had sold a house that they'd held for over 10 years and we could do some magic and turn it into something that was going to be tax-free. But the biggest part that this really hurts is people who are um, moving to aged care because there are effectively three different contracts for entry to aged care and there's a a deemed amount effectively for what your house will be worth, regardless of whether it's a little shack by the beach or, sorry, a little shack by the beach is probably worth like yeah. three million bucks now um, versus something that might be in the country that might really only be worth $150,000. So there's that same deemed value, whether we're talking a mansion or, you know, something far less salubrious. So those people who say, bought in Sydney or on the coast somewhere years ago and paid next to nothing for it. They might have spent $50,000 on a house, but it, it might be worth close to a million or more. So those people, they've often got ten grand in the bank because they're struggling to pay their rates and all their other expenses, but they've got this massive asset and the, the government says, yeah, we're now going to count that against you from an aged care perspective. And it makes it very confronting for families. Mm. And again, you know, without time to plan, that makes it very tricky. And 99% of the time when people move to aged care, it's because somebody's had a fall or it's an emergency. It's not something that you can plan six, 12 months down the track. It's just like, bang, done. Now I need to move to aged care and sort this money out, thanks. Yeah, so in a way you need you do need to have those, those 
conversations earlier though. You can never really have them at the right time because the person who's needing care, they're 99% of the time in denial about their need for care and they will fight tooth and nail to keep their independence. Yeah. So there's no right time, Fraser. There's, it's just when you have to have that conversation. Yeah, fair enough. Um, now I wanted to talk just quickly about um, technology and, and the, the landscape of technology that's that's coming into play when it comes to um, people all, of all ages of retirement, obviously. Um, most of them, I would say, not coming from a, uh, an upbringing of technology, uh, let's just say. And, um, and then now having to cope with uh, new changes and, and what that might bring and, and the uncertainty that comes with it. Well, I've, I've had recently two instances, one where I we set up two new investments with um, a provider. They got an email from that provider and they basically said to each other, do you know what about this? And they went, they looked at each other and went, oh, no. Nah. So the next thing I know, the emails ended up in their junk file and um, I, I met with them and I said to them, did you get um, an email from this particular provider? And they went, yeah, is that important? I'm like, yeah, where is it? And they went junk and we pull it out. We have to actually action that. So there's a, a lot of fear about spam and somebody taking their identity and, and doing something wrong. And then there's other people who literally, and those two were actually IT savvy, They because they were IT savvy that, and they hadn't, they hadn't read my email yet that said you will be getting an email from this provider. They'd just gone, oh, this is rubbish, put it in the, in the junk thing. But the other um, side of the coin is that I had clients recently and they are so fearful it went in the junk thing and then they went, we don't know how to do this, Gail. So we actually had to sit down together and I showed them how to set it up on their phone, how to log in and do those types of things. So there's a, a whole gap in what provider expectations are and we, whether we're talking government organizations that go hey you need to have a mygov account or you need to do whatever a lot of our clients or a lot of seniors don't have computers they might have a smartphone but they still don't understand how to use a smartphone other than really how to maybe check an email how to take a photo and make a phone call oh, oh probably and facebook just saying. <laughs> Got to check up on the grandkids. That's it. Yeah, or, or work out how to sell something on the marketplace. Fantastic. Thanks, Gail, for, for chatting all about all the different things around retirement today. Really appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. If someone wanted to continue this conversation, how, what, what would be the best way to get hold of you? Well, my, my business is called Prosperity Planning Partners. Uh, we're based on the Gold Coast, and I have clients pretty much in every state of Australia. So it's not like you have to be Gold Coast-centric. In fact, I've got some in WA, South Australia, Northern Territory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually every state but at, yeah, yeah. Um, ACT right. and that's a territory. Um, and you can find me at um, prosperityplanning.com.au or you can just email me at gail at prosperityplanning.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gail. Really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing today. You're welcome. I loved every minute of it. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, another episode of the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser and I'm joined by Emily. Hey, Em. Hey, Fraser. How you doing? I'm tremendous. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> and we're here to do some shout outs, which is a really cool part of our week. Amazing. Yes, let's do it. So big shout out to two XY uh, legends, Charles Blake and Timothy Reed. 
both smart tech extraordinaires uh, who have joined forces to create a high-touch, high-value uh, eight-week program to help advice firms who are serious about improving their technology and efficiency. Now, the cool thing about this program is that they are hosting it exclusively on XY, which is really exciting. And their goal is to help advice firms achieve a minimum target of 20% or more in productivity gains, which for the layperson really just means getting back hundreds of hours across your business to reinvest into those value adding and growth driving activities. So anything that champions efficiency and business growth and understanding and moving the needle on technology in your business is awesome. And to be able to exclusively host that on XY is extra special as well. So amazing stuff. Great to have you guys on board and looking forward to seeing the results and outcomes that come off the back of the advisors that go through this program. Brilliant. Thank you, Emma. Look, way to go, Charles. Nice work. And Tim, you know, like this is an incredible program. Two of my favorite things, efficiency and effectiveness uh, whilst using technology. Uh, And not only that, they're using a really efficient and effective platform for running their course. So if you've got a course or a program that you want to bring to life, then uh, reach out to Em and, and, and have a think about whether you might want to put it on the XY platform.